Hey, welcome to True Alignment. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Good morning. Good afternoon today, actually. Good afternoon today. So we're in a different place today. So yes, we're coming. We we're coming uh, to you from Edgar Papke's office in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University like in Denver, Colorado. I like to think of it as the True Alignment office at yeah at the Innovation the Center. The True Alignment at, office. Yeah. yeah, we're we're kicked out of home today. Mm-hmm. A group of soccer players. It looks yeah, like. we have uh, the university re- recently made a partnership with the uh, Colorado Rapids Youth Soccer Club. And so they helped us uh, erect some fields and they're bringing their club here and they're actually a tenant organization and uh, working on offering scholarship to students in their in all of their club programs that want to come to Regis University. So a really kind of neat and unique partnership. Yeah. But they take up a lot of space. And you'll see a lot of people walking around in Adidas uniforms <laughs> Adidas. and shirts. and Indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the, the transition taking place. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. A transition. Speaking of transitions, Edgar, how you doing? Well, thank you. So, Jim, welcome. Thanks. So you have, like, the ultimate transition <laughs> going on. Yeah. Um, I guess it is out to the world now. Um yeah, uh, transition is coming. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, yeah. My uh, my wife, Kyla, and I are currently on our way to becoming parents, so. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> the look in your eye and the smile on your face tells us everything. Yeah, good. Yeah, we're pretty excited. Yeah, I would imagine. Scared, so. of course, but yeah. excited. My, my father, I, I love him to death, and, and this is, uh, you know, he, he had the dad jokes bar none. And so, you know, here he's, here's where he would say, um, do you know what caused it? That would be his dad joke. So anyway, moving right along. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. Thanks, just, just, I stick to movie references, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it was my joke. I did subscribe oh, yeah, to you, the... Uh, I, I thought that when you were giving credit for it, that you were also blaming already. <laughs> But yeah, I have started the uh, the Daily Dad joke podcast. I've started listening to that, and the uh, the Daily Dad. Um, there's another Daily Dad podcast that's pretty good, uh, insightful knowledge. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, good and for you. So, so, what did you learn today as you listened? I forgot to listen today. <laughs> <laughs> dads don't take days off, Jim. Come on, learn. Yeah, dads get forgetful real fast, though, because dads aren't the multitaskers moms are. At least of the the perception of multitasking, which is actually impossible because you can only have one thought at a time. So I suppose it's it's a matter of how many things you're engaged in behaviorally at once. Yeah. So transitions uh, and uh, what uh, what uh, what scares you most? You said you know it's kind of scary. Um, I mean, just making sure that I can be the most influential in a positive, you know, form for this. Child's life, like I'm glad you added positive to the. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> that can go many ways, but uh, yeah, you know, you just want to make sure you do the best for the child and you know give them the best you can. But you know, I always say I'm scared, but I know I have a good background and I have a lot of a huge support system. So um, yeah, we and we've talked about transitions and change here before on the, on the podcast. It's kind of interesting because even if you're really, really excited about something and you and you look forward and you go, yeah, this is great. This is a great change. This is a great transition I'm going to move through only to realize, you know, somewhere along the line, it, here comes the fear. Here comes something that's going to creep in. You can you can count on it because with every opportunity, every transition, there is the positive effect of it. And then there's also the potential negative effect. You know, it's much like, you know, You've got light, and you've got the other side of the coin. Yeah, I think the hardest part about um, being a father is you're going to have influence whether you want to or not, right? I mean, I think that's the your 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 presence will be more of an influence than you can ever imagine. Uh, for it's, me, it, it's like being a leader. Uh, people people take the cues from you; they watch you. Your parents parents really at the end of the day, regardless of what they say through their behavior. They're telling us what's acceptable, unacceptable behavior, just like leaders in the culture, right? Is that, yeah, the influence is incredible. Yeah. You know, I think this idea that you have to, uh, you have to, you go through these points in your life where you 
wake up in the morning one day and you can choose to be a different person than you are now. Um, and, and you know you can do it. It's really difficult to do. I mean, not, not many people can just choose to be different. Uh, person. I mean, my wife works in the healthcare field, and you know, this is a collection of choices that have gotten people to where they're where they lack health now, and so they need to make a different set of choices to be somebody different. And it sounds so simple on paper, but it's so complex. Um, and I think this is the part that's easily disconnected from from your children is that you know it and you can say it, but the modeling, the modeling on whether or not you get to do it. Um, you know, and kids will be, I mean, I just dropped my daughter off at college last week trying to figure out who she is. We're going to see if she remakes herself. So I'm going to tie that to uh, my personal experience right now is my mother is going through the transition of moving from independent living to moving into a a senior living um, situation. And uh, so much of what the reality of this is is much like with your daughter, you know, who's my daughter, I'm discovering at a much deeper level who my mother is. Because as she moves through this transition, it's, um, there's elements now of excitement and possibility. But there's also just, you know, a lot that's holding her back and that she's fearful of going forward. And there's, there's so much, there's so much to that. And how that impacts then our well-being uh, how it impacts the relationships of the people around us. And also there's this one other piece that, that keeps resonating through it all to me. And that is as we move through transitions, much like looking at your own behavior and your own influence on your children, um, what you're really doing is confronting truth. That's what happens. When we move through transitions, what we're really doing and when we think about ideas of loss and fear and grieving and excitement and possibility. Um, in one way, we're discovering who we are and uh, seeing the possibility of who we are. And we're also going to respond to our fear. Yeah. And to have to be truthful about that, not always easy. No. I had uh, one of the things I really enjoy in my life is my wife and I keep a Zen calendar on the bathroom counter. And it is... Uh, it's all, it's all over the place. I mean, it's re- religious philosophy, regular philosophy. Well, you align to it quite well then. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. <laughs> this morning's, uh, this morning's uh, calendar entry was a, was a Zen saying that was something along the lines of uh, finding the way is about being like the tree. That the tree doesn't doesn't pine for the bird to land on its limb nor desire for it to stay. Um, and, and, you know, if you can get to that point, then you, then you found you're closer to the way is what the Zen saying said. But, you know, I think as you talk about that transition and, and we're confronting the truth and we're having, we're having uh, that fear in there, this idea of um, tightness, tightness to our identity now is really difficult to figure out when things change, when we go through a transition, what's my identity then? I mean, you, you mentioned your mom. We have some fantastic uh, neighbors in our neighborhood, which are like our neighborhood parents, frankly. And they are um, they're in their 90s now, and they're, they're going to make the decision to, to leave. Um, I think John is ready. Teresa definitively is not. She's not. Even though she was the um, she was the grease on this because of 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 something that happened to her physically, and so, but she does not want to leave, and and she can't imagine she can't imagine not having a yard to take care of. She can't imagine all of these things in that transition that are fear of loss. Yeah, that's interesting on two levels. One is that my mother and father. Uh, when they talked years ago about what what if something happens to one of us, or inevitably it will, right? inevitably one of us will leave before the other, unless a, you know, something out of the ordinary happens. And it was um, uh, it was always we have a plan. We have a plan. If, when one of us is gone, the other one has a plan. Well, it was my mother that 
it, that really much, very much drove that idea and that way of thinking. Let's create a plan, and and she would say, "Here, here's the plan," and here we are, uh, a couple of years or so later, and um, the implementation of the plan isn't isn't there. You know, it's uh, it really becomes difficult to be able to move through the grieving, the loss, and then there is a loss that occurs that then um, creates a further transition. It's always that ripple effect. And it's interesting because of that idea, that analogy or the metaphor of the pebble, you know, falling into the pond and then it ripples out to the shore. Well, let's consider this. Where does the energy go? It comes back. And so it seems like every transition, you hit a certain point and there's a cascades or a ripple effect to that change. And then at some level it keeps coming back and there's a continuum to it. And so I think what happens to us in transition, there's that loss and, you know, the potential exploration that comes with, inevitably we have to find ourselves in exploration and that loss only discover that that's an ongoing. And what you just, what you just touched on, how do we see ourselves and what kind of changes do we then want or anticipate and undertake ourselves that is that's a constant that's always there and in times of transition gets accelerated so so edgar a a leadership question i mean i think we're going to go in and out today a little bit of some you know we rooted ourselves in personal um, Jim's, you know, wonderful. And we've talked about our kids, our parents, and our neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So, and and we got a little philosophy in there. Probably religion and politics are coming soon. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, um, you know, I want to wander in and out of the business context and the leadership context here as well. Okay. So you know, as as you describe those human conditions, and you know, I think they um, they're different for everybody. I think we should we should get that out on the table that how long those ripple effects move out and come back yeah. is, is a time frame um, that is unpredictable, unpredictable. And I, you know, on a, on a personal note, you know, my mom, uh, my father had, had passed a long time ago, but my mom passed away in 2013. It, it made me a completely different human being. And I think the ripples are still going out and I'm not sure they're coming back yet. Um, in many instances, a lot, a lot of things they are, but in, in a lot of things that are not also. So in a, in a business context, you know, this is one thing coming out of the global pandemic, um, the great resignation, which they say is uh, a bounce back a little bit now, although there's a, a lot of new data coming out uh, just recently about what that bounce back looks like. And, you know, perhaps wages are raised if you transition to a different organization instead of the same one. Um how do you manage, how do you manage a set of people? I mean, we do so much work around culture and developing culture and supporting culture. How do you manage a collection of people who are in varying states of their own transitions all the time? I'll unpack it from the general to the specific. Okay. And hopefully this is helpful. I begin with the idea that uh, we have to develop among leaders and organizations a mindset of well-being. To begin with, how do we create a culture? With, with what, to whatever degree we want to define our culture, at the end of the day, the well-being of the individuals within the context of the culture of the organization, there's a mindset there that says we're going to be conscious of it and we're going to be not just observers to it in our consciousness, rather we're going to engage actively in that. So we begin with that. And then from there, then we can begin to start having those conversations of how do we train leaders to be more effective in helping people move through transitions? What are all the different forms that uh, well-being can take, uh, especially from the psychological perspective? And how do we um, equip our leaders with the means to which to have the conversations that are truly aimed at and um, provide or people's sense of, in a, in, a, in a way, a predictable sense of well-being, that I'm going to be okay. And that leaders and people are given this a skill set to be able to do that. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be a psychologist or a therapist. But what we do need to do, and especially as leaders, is understand some of the basic 
elements of the human condition. And foremost to that is understanding what people go through when, the, when change comes at them and they're moving through transition. So that's one aspect of it. The other one is if, if you look at it through the lens of competency, capability, and, and access, and then another piece of it is do we have people in an organization who are able to help people through transitions in more deeper, meaningful conversation where there's a sense of trust that this will be and confidentiality is honored and that sense of well-being um, is, is the result of trust and a trust in the culture and the system and what leaders provide, including um, how organizations then provide resources to people to enable them to, to move through transition. And what's, what I find so remarkably powerful in our coaching work, I mean, we're constantly having conversations with people about transitions, whether, they, whether they're upwardly mobile and getting promoted, there's change and there's fears associated with that. Sometimes people are in conflict with someone else in the organization that they need to work through that and there's fears associated with that. I think just opening up the door to having an ability, and we've talked about this, to have some vulnerability within the system and empathy and understanding somebody else's experience requires us to also have people in the organization that can connect to their own experiences so that that, that um, empathy comes to the forefront. So I, I have a, a, a genuine curiosity question. In our coaching work inside of an organization, are we the are we the surrogate for the organization to do that? Oh, great question. Um, intentionally, yes. I think that that becomes intentional, and I think that's where the outside resources become so valuable, because there's a third party that 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 sense of confidentiality and and sense of safety I think is higher because they're from outside the organization. So I think the idea of the surrogate or the the outside resources are a very powerful one that it uh, not only can you then have a higher degree of expertise coming into your system, into your culture to, to do this work, uh, at the same time, I think it also gives that, that sense of uh, security and safety that, that, uh, that everyone is seeking. And we talk a lot about uh, psychological safety, right? And, yeah, what is, and what does that mean? And that means that I can... I can really be truthful. Here it is. Now we're coming back around to what happens to people in transition to confront the truth. And that I, I have a way of doing that. And that allows me to feel safe because all through our lives, and I think we've made this mention here on the podcast before, as adults, we're just children with a more sophisticated capability to manage our fears. And that includes hiding from them or repressing them or not, not, not speaking to them or at times just acknowledging them can be so, so powerful. I don't always have to have an answer. What I do need is the ability to begin to explore where I'm going. Yeah. You know, I have an image in my head. Um, and, and just for, for all the listeners, I have the movie reference already locked in. So I'll just figure out where to, where to touch it and, and pull it in. But um, the image I have in my head of an organization and the people inside the organization is kind of uh you know, two, two dots in space um, that are connected by a rope. And, and, you know, when one moves, the other one comes with, but not necessarily on the same time. And if one moves too fast, one can shoot past. So, you know, we have personal transitions that are going on. We have organizational transitions that are going on. Um, you know, as you, thank you for that response about, you know, us playing that kind of surrogate I might state that part of the surrogacy is really about a allowing the personal components to be so apparent, which aren't, frankly, just aren't always welcome in an organization. Yeah. Or they're a welcome to a point. I'm going to take that right back to the front end of what you said, and that is, you know, there's the organizational list of personal. I mean, let's cut through the crap here. I mean, every organizational transition is going to wind up being personal at some level. Mm -hmm. Those involved are touched by it, even if they're indirectly touched by it. So I, I think that's that. I think that needs to be noted. 
and uh, to be able to accept that as, as a basic principle of managing transition in organizations and for leaders to do that. And the other part of that is that, you know, again, coming back to the surrogate, I think what's important to recognize is as people are coached in organizations, including coaching them and helping them to move through change and understanding uh, their own grieving process, their own letting go, their own sense of loss and, and exploration of what, where to go and how to, how to move forward, I think an important aspect of when that work is, get it, is, is happening is that we're actually teaching. People are learning. And then what happens is if you, and if you think about this through the lens of a, of a culture, as a culture of well-being, then what you see is just like the ripple effect of the change, you're, you're creating another transition, which is that you're spreading it through the organization. People are learning as, as you help them, and then they can help someone else. And that, I think, has a sense of permeating through culture, regardless whether it's a high engineering technical environment. I can tell you working with some space companies and, and that, and, and that, in that industry, how important it is to have the, the personal element and the ability for people to talk about change and transition at a very personal level, how helpful it is to how the work actually gets done. It makes me completely and utterly wonder if if all of these issues surrounding the remote workforce are really about the leadership's desire to have a personal relationship. And maybe it's not to give to the employee as much as it is to receive. The reciprocal of that. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Leaders talk a lot about, yeah, we need to have people engaged and give them a sense of connectivity, et cetera. You know, start with looking in the mirror. How much do I need that? We all know that we need that sense of connectivity. That, um, and how often leaders talk, uh, at least in my, in, in my experience, and I don't think it's going to be hard to find data on this one, how, how loneliness affects leaders, how oftentimes they feel alone. And who do I get to go talk to? Well, I get my coach. Or yeah. as, as, as I'm quite often referred to as their executive therapist, right? So yeah. there you go. And so, so much of what we see in others begins with recognizing it in ourselves. And I, and I think that's a part of this as well, is if we're going to develop this through organizations. And I do wholeheartedly believe that there is a responsibility for leaders to be able to help people through transitions of all kinds, to help them to understand how to grapple with loss at least acknowledging the loss so that they can help them to explore what, how to move forward. Yeah, I wonder if it's in conflict a little bit, Edgar, with trying to... So many leaders are just in a place of trying to keep people. Um, let me put a little meat on the bone around what I mean by keep people. I, I, have, I had a former colleague, and he was always in my ear about the organization we worked uh, together in once upon a time, that there are two kinds of, of leaders. And he always, uh, he was from the South, and so he used a college football analogy, and he would throw out some football coaches, and I couldn't tell you who those football coaches were. But he said, you know, some, some great football coaches come in, and they figure out who their personnel are, and they develop a game plan based on who the personnel yeah, one of the best soccer coaches I've ever met. Uh, some of the people in this room here from the uh, Rapids, I worked with a uh, head coach from a club, uh, and his entire system of looking at how to create a winning team was to look at the players and organize a system to respond to what he had in terms of his players' capability, technical skill, speed, psychological um, traits. Yeah, Absolutely. So, and that's, that's in contrast to others that say, you know, I'm the leader, I know the game plan. I'm going to force you into the system. I'm going to force you into the system. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I, we can unpack the whole culture thing as part of that conversation. I think it is important to recognize that as a, as a leader, unless you know, unless you know your, 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 players, you're not going to succeed as a coach unless you intimately know the people around you and what they're capable of and who they are. You're probably not going to succeed at the level that you could. You, you can succeed. I will suggest you there's always an opportunity cost in not having that, that ability, that knowledge. 
And um, to take it one step further, I think it can show up in different ways. And yet at, at, at the end of the day, the question is always, do you, do you show me through your behavior as a leader that you care about me? Now, this is particularly true when people are going through loss or transition. Do you really care about me? Caring can show up as, yeah, I'm going to help you develop your skills and allow you to be more competent and, and give you opportunity. Caring could be, yes, I'm going to spend time with you and connect with you, or I'm going to make sure that you're part of a great team. And caring can just simply show up as that I have a personal interest at some level who you are. Now, there's... Uh, and. There, there are th- those that will say, well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm more concerned about the performance of people and making sure that they perform well. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> you know, all you have to do is ask them, gee, does, does your personal motivation and how people treat you affect your performance? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, I've seen so many leaders. I've experienced personally so many leaders that are, you know, they get that for themselves, but it hasn't quite hit them yet to bring it down to the people that they are also leading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I know one thing that I, I pretty much have put in the bucket of a, of a character flaw of my own is I don't prepare for things like I once did. I have a confidence that I can figure it out. I, I think I'm thinking really deeply about making some connections, but I am, there's a reason I don't prepare because some of the answer is going to be, it depends. I mean, if we get in here, <laughs> if we get in here on the podcast day, I mean, we need to know generally where we need to be, but the reality is if we get here on a podcast day and something's happened to you on the way in the door, we could have the entire plan figured out and it's going to all go to shit, frankly. <laughs> Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you know, that's think- really interesting. I was just, I was just reflecting on my own, my own approach to this. And uh, I'm so steeped in the idea of design now that if I have a clear intention of what it is that I want to, or a higher sense of mission and purpose, allowing what's in the space to, to, um, to guide to guide me or, or to know better how I can use what I have to offer. Um, yeah, I think at times over preparation is going to be uh, uh, really, it's much like if I'm helping you as, as someone moving through transition and I over prepare, I may walk in the door with a solution for you, which leaders do a lot. They say, well, maybe you ought to do this. So have you tried this? Or yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Have you thought about? And so you see that happening when the reality is that um, if you have, if you're too set on that or you're at some, at some level, if you have any setting at all, that you have a predetermined outcome, uh, you're, A, don't be surprised if you're surprised, I suppose. And secondly is, you know, you know the old expression of barking up the wrong tree. You might be in the, in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. We had uh we dropped my youngest daughter off at Gonzaga and we had three days of orientation and we heard the president multiple times and the vice president for student affairs. And, you know, one of their consistent messages was move from being a manager to a coach. And uh, I mean, they went as so far as to say, here's some language for you. You know, instead of here's what you should do, it's, do you have a plan? How do you think the plan is going to work out? What would happen if the plan doesn't work out? Um, I mean, they were really, I, it's not what I expected from, from the university orientation. Yeah. Uh, but it was quite fruitful, frankly. It's transition. It's transition leadership and management because it's, it's so what's happening to you? What's, what, are you, what, are you, what are you looking for? Where are you going? What does that look like? What is your plan? What is your, what is your way of getting there? It's all inquiry. Yeah. When you see those walls, right, in an organization, you can see the walls come up when somebody doesn't really want to answer those questions because they're busy defending they're busy defending current self I mean yeah and sometimes as leaders we we put people in that position yeah yeah I I think as an organization goes through some change and we did talk about this uh, I think early on maybe episode two even we talked about change um 
when an organization needs to change and they start to put their people in defense mode, it's really a struggle, really a struggle to lead people. It's important to recognize that because then now here we come again full circle because the defense, the defensive behavior, defensive response is a um, surfacing of the fear in one shape, form, or another. That's what's happening. And uh, it's important to recognize that. I'm just thinking in the back of my mind where the movie is. Yeah, I think it's right here, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, um, it, it might be, it might have some stickiness uh, at certain at a certain age. And I don't know. I'm curious if you've seen this one. Um, the Judd Apatow movies. Do you know any of these? So this is 40. Oh, yeah. So this is 40 is a transition movie. Have you not seen it, Jim? No, I don't, I don't think yeah. I know this one. Because you're not 40. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting there. <laughs> you're not? No. <laughs> it's, it's, um, you know, this is forty. Is uh, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann uh, are uh, a couple, and their their kids are transitioning to different times in their lives, and uh, you know, trying to figure out who they are. And the parents are so trying to figure out who they are. And you know, Paul Rudd he's balancing this, taking care of his own father, who's becoming more childlike by the moment. Um, I, and it's just a, an entire movie full of these kind of life transitions, which lead to these questions of. Who am I, and 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 what am I about? I mean, I'm always Edgar. I just want to come back so so quickly to the idea of in, in, intention. You mentioned it. You know, if you go in to to lead somebody and you have your intention already set and you can't take anything in, you're gonna you're gonna miss. And this idea, I think, in in this is forty, and it's really kind of um, a, a destructive, right? There's a parts of that movie that are they're really kind of you're watching them self-destruct. Um, and in the end, he's a record executive who's a little bit over his head and, and, and you know, has extended, has overextended himself financially in, in the business. And it ends with them actually, um, and I forget who the musician was, but in a kind of coffee house setting, just going back to the roots of, I, I just enjoy music. Like this is in my soul. Um, and you're right. I mean, they put a, that nice bow on it at the end and happily ever after. Um, but it really, there was, I mean, there's, it's, it's a rough movie in the middle. Um, and if you watch it at a certain point in your life, it's even rougher because the mirror is shining bright, um, right back to you. Uh, two things in that. First, I want to go back to the idea of the intention and to, to some clarity. Um, intention, not just the outcome in the moment. Intention of what do I want for the relationship? And yeah. how do I want this relationship to develop and unfold and to be, to be very uh, aligned to that in, in how, I, uh, how I approach someone, yeah. especially in a transition, a moment of transition. I think it goes back to the other. And then the movie reference in of itself reminds me of a musical reference and going back to how we influence our children, James. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes back to this, my son Turner. His favorite is is the Neil Young song "Old Man," <laughs> and he and he always he, he, it's kind of like uh, our unspoken hour song between my son and I, his old man, and and then he always just smirks it. I'm a lot like you are. Yeah. <laughs> I just go, oh shit, too bad. So, so yeah, so there's Cat that. Stevens one, right? Uh-huh. I mean that he is his father. Yeah, yeah, and so, and I think that's probably one of the greatest lessons that we can learn about ourselves in is that in transition it's going to it's going to uh, transition causes us forces us in a way to ask the question who really am i and what's the truth about that you know it has a way of coming right at it and says what's really true about who i am i can create and devise all kinds of personas and way of putting myself out there the bottom line is when I'm confronted with that, there's no, there's really no other place to go than to, um, yeah, not face to, rather um, accept ourselves, accept yeah. the truth about who we are. I think that line between uh, who you are and who others want you to be for so many is such a struggle, myself included. I mean, I think that's really, uh, and I watched, I watched this in my children. Um, I watch this in my children really kind of uh, 
wrestle with this one, right? And that's that same kind of, you know, the organization tail whipping the people and the uh-huh. people tail whipping the organization. You can watch that happen so clearly in my children and myself. Yeah, I was going to say, as you're watching them do it, they're watching you do it. Oh, so, so true. <laughs> so true. Um, you know, I've had this conversation. Uh, you know, it's a, it's kind of a joke in my family. You know, my wife has never seen my chin. It's always had hair on it. Um, right. And she probably never will, frankly. Right. I mean, knock wood. I don't, I don't, can't think of a reason where she would actually see it one day. But when I first came to work in this business school, my beard was quite long. And so, you know, people are like, Oh, business, you got to look a certain way. Like this entire university is about be yourself, (laughs) find out what, what, what was intended for you internally. And yet this externality of how I should look, it was just always a puzzler to me. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Awareness of who you are and how you bring that, bring that to life. Um, is at the forefront, even in the uh, learning to lead in the exec ed program here. Uh, that's the first one, life design time. Who let, let me design my life and create alignment in my life as a leader yeah. and begin to become intentional because everything that follows for the next eight months is going to need to align and feed into that and make that come to life. That's what the learning's all about, especially as a leader. Uh, the f- uh, first and basic premise, the holy grail of leadership is self-knowledge. Do you get people that really struggle? Struggle with that question up front? Uh, yeah, I, th- I, did. I think about what struggle means. And um, I think at times, yes, because at times you'll see a hesitation to really want to go there. Um, and it often depends where someone is in their in their lives and their roles in life and and uh, what it is that um, they're currently confronted with, you know, whether it be responsibilities, becoming a dad, or you know, all the different pieces. So it's also a matter of when you catch them at the right. What is interesting, I will tell you, is over the nine months, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that one of the key areas of development keeps surfacing and asking the question as we talk about organizational cultures and we talk about strategy and customer experience, you you can't you just can't do it well without leaning into who you are and understanding, you know, why you advocate, why you think the way you do, why you, the basic premise of how you see business and life itself. Yeah. It's powerful. I, and I can only imagine, you know, that part of, uh, and, and, you know, I've, I've watched this, I've watched this with leaders that I've had. Uh, I've watched this in some of myself as a leader, you know, when people are going through transitions, you, you know, to get to the personal. I mean, I, you know, I believe in, in the personal, I was just thinking about this. There's a, there's a leader in my life where I just want to be like, close the door and say, give me something personal. Like I, you just got to give me some anchor point that is you, right? Not this, you, um, you know, and that's something I desire with all the people that, uh, I have relationships with period, but you know, getting to that point where your leaders are comfortable sharing that, um, I'm going to go back to your question about people struggling because I just thought a little bit more about that. And one of the things that uh, I see, one of the things that I see happening is people will come into this program and uh, they'll have read the, uh, um, you know, here's the different modules. And the first one is this, you know, leadership awareness piece. And I think, in fact, now I'm realizing that a lot of them walk in the door expecting they're going to do a DISC or a Myers-Briggs, and they're going to get their personality typing formula. And I think they're surprised that we're going to go a lot deeper and a lot faster into who they are than a personality assessment. As a matter of fact, you can set that personality assessment aside. If anything, those provide doors that we walk through to better, deeper, richer understanding of who we are. But we pretty much go right at it. And I... and. Uh, and I think, again, that sets the stage for the next eight months that really opens them to to just deeper, richer learning and application of what they're learning because there's, a, there's just a deeper connectivity and alignment to who they are to how they can use what they're being offered. Yeah, you know, I think here's my question. That's pretty amazing, Edgar. So um, kudos for setting it up that way. Uh, I know from from working with you for a while that, it's fun to, w- <laughs> I've had the opportunity to sit in organizations and watch groups of them 
and, and the different kinds of looks, right? I mean, and that's why we get to the, the <laughs> it's all about me, right? I mean, this, um, I, I'm, I mean, I'm experiencing this now with, with a couple of people that, uh, that I am, am set up to lead is some have just, a a lack of willingness to go through the activity to do some of these things. Right. I mean, uh, what did one person say to me recently? You know, why would we, you know, in, in academia is a different animal, right? I mean, it's very, uh, it's very, it's got some parliamentary procedure type things to it. I mean, and that's uh, both. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does, but um, it's, it's also a system that is actually intentionally set up as kind of a democratic system that the, um, you know, the president of your organization, like a CEO is the leader, but intentionality of, of the challenge and explain yourself is built into the entirety of the organization, right? So the cabinet in an academic institution is supposed to be challenging to the president, the uh, the faculty that report to the provost are supposed to be challenging of the provost, right? I, I mean, and so you're both leading them, but also being responsible to them at the same time. And, and, and one of my colleagues who has come out of industry ha- has never known this model, right? That that is, uh, you know, that's one of the ways we act is that we, we are offering that challenge. And, and what she said to me is, you know, I did that day-long retreat, which was an absolute waste of my time. And now you guys want to write, what, why didn't we just tell her the stuff that we thought that day? Well, that's not the purpose of the retreat. That's not the intention of the retreat, right? The intention of the retreat is to, is to find common ground. Mm-hmm. And then the, you know, the letter, the communication to the, to the dean, the provost, the president is about um, holding them accountable. Which is really interesting, too, because when you think about most of the times in industry, it's the, it's the flip of that where the accountability card is intended for people at the top of the organization to drive down through the rest of the organization, not realizing the shared responsibility that exists through, through the system, to see it through the system's lens. And I think that this is another piece, and we can come kind of full circle on this, is that at the, at the end of the day, where you're always in transition in one shape, form, or another. And so the conversation uh, is, is one that cycle, we cycle through and we also uh, go through the mental exercise that we cycle through it, which is what's happening, right? What's the external force? What's happening in my world? And it doesn't take long to go to, well, what about me? And who, who am I in all of this? And how do, how do I then move forward? How do I grapple with the loss and, and I grieve, whatever the level of loss is, only to inevitably find that I need to move towards exploration? And part of that, and I even hear you in that story of the retreat, uh, is, yeah, we got together because there's a, there's a, there's a need for exploration in this. Collective and then exploration, yeah. Collective exploration, and then from that, and part of the collective exploration feeds into the collective imagination. And when you've got that, when you've got yeah. people engaged, you've got people wanting and they're thirsty for knowledge and, and that they're caring for each other, then you've got something that's really, really powerful. And from that collective imagination, that's how you move it forward. Yeah, I, I hope any leader that is, uh, or a potential leader that's listening to the podcast today heard, heard that last part uh, very clearly is, you know, how do you set the conditions for collective exploration? Um, Jim, here's the, there's no distinction between being a parent and being a leader, in my mind. I mean, I think there's such, such similarities. I think you're totally right. At the end of the day, it's all about life, isn't it? Yeah, even uh, the last few months, uh, my business partner and I, it's like, I feel like I've gotten so much, apparently, experience from that. (laughs) like you know we're very personal with our employees like you know we're all friends and we're all also coworkers. but yeah it's it's interesting to watch and try to help them grow but I'm I'm hearing you guys talk about this and I'm I'm thinking about that the whole time like I've stepped back so many times just saying 
okay, the way I am going to do this is not necessarily the way I should push on them because I need to let them explore. And there's probably a better way that they're going to find anyway. And that's great because you can hear it in your own thought and your language. Mm -hmm. Pushing on them is very different than exploring and pulling and opening up possibilities. Yeah. So much better as a, a group, like you said. Yeah. I'm always wondering, you know, I've seen so many organizations and, um, The, you can watch the fear in the culture. Like people don't want to be in that exploration. They don't, um, they're afraid to share that they might have a better way. And I think uh, that gives them some, some level of, of inaction because they're, they're waiting. They're waiting and largely based out of fear. I mean, everything comes back to yeah. some, some level of fear. My idea is not the best, and so I have to wait for a better one. I don't know, or maybe I'm not going to get anything better. I already believe I'm not going to get anything better, which is really kind of scary because that's a really, uh, there's a lot of, uh, what's what's what I'm looking for? Um, There's a lot of boundaries to that, just a lot of uh, limitations. Yeah. You you know, uh, for, for years of running the Innovation Center, in years of working with potential entrepreneurs, one of the one of the I think the most often misconception of an entrepreneur that I that I hear from so many people, my students over the years, is that an entrepreneur is a uh, is just an over the top risk taker, right? I mean, cliff dive, and here's the other movie reference: Along Came Polly. I mean, if you have not seen this, YouTube the. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman filling in for his friend, just, you know, as, as the insurance uh, uh, risk adjuster, and and you know, just describing um, Brian Brown's character as an entrepreneur as like a, you know, volcano losing, um, you know, just, <laughs> I mean, just this, you know, over the top risk taker, um, and, and I think that that is that is such a common, an unfortunate misconception. Um, Right, because I think some people, and, and this is how I would label myself. I mean, I actually, people think I don't like rules at all, um, and I actually like, I like a set of a construct to work from. Yeah. Um, I also don't have the fear to move it if it needs to be moved, and I and I think that is the, um, that's a weird juxtaposition for so many people. But you know, I'm I'm trying to set the conditions for some of the people that that are working for me right now. I have to tell you, they're in they're in such inaction mode, and I'm trying to figure out how much of the culture has developed that fear of what if it doesn't work, what if it's not the right idea, um, and and how do I change? How do I both model and change that approach so that they um, become a little bit more courageous? Yeah. yeah. Be intentional. Uh, speak to what it is that you're you're seeking in the relationship, and then inquire. Yeah, here's my experience of this. What's getting in the way? Let's talk about it. I have a question for you. Yeah. Just just a blunt question. Do you have Do you have examples in your mind of when flatter organizations actually work? Do I have examples in my mind when flatter organizations work? Right. I mean, this was a conversation in leadership for a long, long time was to flatten the organization as much as possible. Yeah. And there right at the end of that, I think, is what you're coming at is uh, as much as possible. Uh, Human nature in of itself, uh, we depend on each other to be competent and to um, help each other to succeed, which in the end then will always have some kind of form of hierarchy attached to it. It's what's the level of hierarchy and the use of that hierarchy. So flatter organizations, yes, they can work. It has to be well, well, like you. We're saying having some understanding of how things work, which you could call boundaries, you could call it rules, call it what you like, norms. Having some sense of how things work allows us then to have flatter organizations that can be really high performing. And it is really about exploring what that looks like and having a common framework and language and terminology for what we would call a high participatory culture or, uh, you know, some authenticity elements, uh, culture, uh, how that works. And so even, even in highly technical environments, you can, you can create 
flat or level organizations, you're always going to have hierarchy. It's the application use and the understanding of how the hierarchy is um, then used. As you think about the organizations you've worked with over time, and I can think of um, the Mental Health Center of Denver here, uh, Edgar. Wellpower. Wellpower now. Yeah, that's right. They renamed themselves. Um, as you think about service organizations that are so busy doing all the things we're talking about with the customers they actually serve. Yeah. Have you, have you witnessed and seen where they have a struggle to do these things now internal to the organization because they've spent their energy doing it with their customers? Um, excellent question. Um, and I think Wellpower itself is pretty well suited to this. I don't know because I'm not in the organization. I think looking at it from the outside, uh, there is a, there, I think it is that there's an alignment and a conscious alignment of how it is that we treat one another in the organization in alignment to the expectation of how we treat people outside the organization, in particular the, the customer consumer of a product or service. And I think that holds true for every organization. Yeah. And when that goes off the rails, then you're talking like, you know, what Starbucks is engaged in when it went off the rails in terms of creating a sense of community in the organization the uh, employees responded by unionizing, which, <laughs> by the way, is just an indicator they weren't getting enough of a community sense from the organization, so they decided to do their Make own. Their own. That's there right. you go. <laughs> so it's always going to show up. How's that for a transition, yeah. folks? <laughs> Gee, what's missing? Well, you know, yeah, I don't feel like I'm a part of this anymore. What do you think, right? So it's, uh, and then, you know, going back to the pull versus the push, you got to go ask. You've got to be able to ask. Um, you don't have to have all the answers back to leadership. So often leaders is, are seen as having all the answers or the great entrepreneurs or the risk takers, et cetera. I've never seen a person do it on their own. And I, I don't think I ever will. I think it always requires um, some sense of a collective imagination and coming out of a place of you know, designing the future out of a, of a place of human awareness. So uh, listen, third movie reference of the day. Oh um, boy. That, that leader that knows all the answers who in their right mind wants a Wizard of Oz leader, right? Oh, yeah. Sooner or later, you're going to discover that they don't have all the answers anyway. Oh, what do you know the world of politics? All right, well, with that, I think it's probably a good, good way to close out. Like you said, sooner or later, it's going to come down to religion and politics. Why it do you always know? does. All right. Hey, uh, just a quick reminder for all of you out there. That you're always welcome to uh, join in the conversation. Uh, email us, uh, get in touch with us, uh, info at truealignment.com. Um, you can reach out to us, and it, it, we're not hard to find. And um, always uh, welcome to engage in the, in the dialogue and the conversation. We're going to be bringing a lot more guests in. So, Jim, maybe it's, it's possible that we can... Um you know, get a list of our upcoming guests and maybe uh, linked to their LinkedIn profiles or something like that so that people, if they have questions that they want to put in the conversation, they can send ahead of time as well. Yeah, that'd be great. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, thank you all out there for listening. We'll see you the next time around on uh, True Alignment. I'm Edgar Papke. I'm Ken Sagendorf. Thanks, everyone. Be well. <laughs>